So that being said, I want you to I want to start with this. Where we left off last week, talking about the wife's role in submission today, it was Martin Lloyd-Jones that said, No husband is entitled to say that he is the head of the wife unless he loves his wife. It is a leadership of love. And so that's really where we're going to settle in today. Looking as we looked at the term submission last week for wives, today we're going to look at that term leadership for husbands and what that means in the marriage relationship, in the family dynamic, and even in community at large. So Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25 says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And so again, I know last week we stopped at the first verse for the ladies. Wives, submit to your husbands. And we stopped there and kind of dove into this. So, that, so likewise, we'll do the same this morning. Husbands, love your wives. That word is thrown around way too much today. And the word is love. What does love mean? Does it truly look like? What does it sound like? There's a lot of aspects to that word, and, and so what we want to do is spend some time looking at the word and how it's used, because there are various types of love mentioned and used in Scripture. In a lot of the way the word, the word can be defined, what we're looking at here is agape love. There's eros love, which is intimate, erotic type love. There is Phileo love, brotherly love, or affection like a, a, between friends. There's even a, another kind, kind of love. It's called, I think if I'm saying it right, storge or storge love, which is a love between a husband and wife. But even agape love sets itself apart from that. So that's what we want to look at. And, and a lot of people will say, well, it's the love that can only come from God is a God-like love. And there's not necessarily anything wrong with that, but I want to clarify that a little bit. And what agape love means. Number one, it goes beyond our feelings. It goes beyond our feelings. It goes way beyond our emotion. Scripture is very clear as to why we don't follow our heart all the time. Because our heart, as Jeremiah 17 tells us, is what? Wicked. Deceitful. It can lead us astray because if we base our feelings, emotions, and how we live our lives solely on how we feel in the moment, is that the type of love your wife is going to want from you? No, because how often do you come home frustrated because of the day's work? How often do you feel other emotions of sadness or frustration or anger or whatever else? Nothing directly because of your wife, but yet she's in your line of sight now. And what happens? And so when we look at that, it can't be a love based on motions or feelings. That would be a very conditional love. A love that says, I'm only going to love you when I feel like it. That's horrible. <laughs> when you break it down, that's a, that's a very horrible way to feel, to think, and not one God is calling us to as husbands for our wives. If you love your wife based on quid pro quo, we've got a problem. And if you don't know what that means, it simply means when I feel loved, I'll love you back. You do something for me, I'll do something for you. That's not the type of love God is talking about. The kind of love we are to express, and this is your first note here, 
The kind of love we are to express is the same love God shows towards us. Now, I don't want you to think that I'm oversimplifying this love, because I'm really not. I want you to understand the depth of that statement in what it's saying. The kind of love we are to express is the same love God shows towards us. And if we just go to the most well-known passage of Scripture in our Bible, we know what that says. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever would believe in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. A sacrificial love. A love that looks at another individual despite who they are, despite their circumstances, despite what they say or do at any moment to still love them regardless because of the love you have for them that comes from your passion for them, your desire for them. Romans 8.5 says, But God showed his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We know how God shows his love for us. It's not waiting for us to do something for him. And then he says, here, let me pay you back a little bit. Okay, now let me give you a little bit more because you were so nice today. You did well today. You were kind. You helped the lady across the street. You opened the door for somebody. Let me give you a little more love. No, no, no. That's conditional love. That's quid pro quo love. God's love says, despite the fact that you are who you are, before you even recognized me, before you even decided to put your trust in me, I love you so much to give my son for you that even if it takes you years or until the day comes when you stand in front of me, at the end of time, I still would send my son to die for you. It's a sacrificial love. Christ is our example. Period. Christ is our example. So I want you to think about how did Christ show love for his church? And by his church, I mean his people, us. How did he live his life? How did he show love? You have to set it in your mind that this is how you are to live and serve your wife and your family. It is a decisive action. There's a note you want to take this morning, guys. It is that. A decisive action you take part in to set your mind to say, I'm going to love my wife. I'm going to love my children regardless of how they respond. Regardless of what they do or what they say. My decision is to love. But you do that from a place of submission on your knees in humility before God first so that he can fill you up with his love so you can give it away to other people. So the reason I say this is it can be defined as a God-like love. Okay? Because what other God in history that is proclaimed ever sacrificed their life for people that didn't do something for them first? Only Christ has done that. But... Scripture is very clear that we could still have agape love for this world in not a good way. 1 John 2 makes that very clear. Do not love the world or the things in the world. You know what kind of love they use in that passage? 
agape love. So we can decisively say, I want to love the world. I want to do what's wrong. I want to live in any way apart from Christ. And that could be agape love because I decide to choose that way instead of God's way. So it's agape love is not something unattainable. We have agape love. That's why it has to be a decisive action to say, I'm going to put all my time and attention this way, God's way, holy way, as opposed to whatever the world may offer. So that's a very important thing to understand. The type of love that we give needs to be that agape love, decisive love. John MacArthur said, the world continually tells the man to be macho, to defend himself, to assert himself, to bring attention to himself, to live for himself. But God tells the Christian man to give himself up for others, especially for his wife, just as Christ gave himself up for the church. Keywords, service, and sacrifice. Let's look at verses 26 and 27 says that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. So a big key word in there is all that Christ did in service and sacrifice and giving up himself for everybody else is to sanctify us. What does that mean? To cleanse us, to purify us, to wash us clean from the dirt and sin and corrupt world that has stuck to us for so long. By Christ's blood and sacrifice, all that is washed away. Praise God. We're cleansed. That's what sanctification means. Titus chapter 3 verse 5 says, He, Jesus, saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. So what Christ did for us, husbands, we do for our wives and our families. So what does that mean? What does that look like? Number one, if we go back to the end of our study in Joshua, Joshua 24, verse 15, we made that statement of, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Guys, if that is our declaration, if that's our proclamation that we say as husbands, as fathers, then it ought to go along with that, that it is then our duty to maintain a house dedicated to God. <clears throat> that is the responsibility that we take on. Everybody in this room and online might raise their hand, yes, I follow Jesus. Yes, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. But what are you doing to ensure that? That's what falls on us as husbands and fathers. It is our responsibility, our leadership role, that our house is going to be one that serves the Lord. So we're going to dive into that a little bit more this morning. What does that role look like? What does that leadership look like? It's all about, one, the pursuit of holiness. Again, as we follow the Lord... And as Paul said to the Corinthian church, we can say to our family, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Now, I understand, easy to say 
500% more difficult to live out on a daily basis. But that is the responsibility we as husbands should take on. We should stand before our wives and before our family and say, imitate me as I imitate Christ. How does that change your perspective about how you operate inside your home? What you say, what you do, how you lead. It's a tremendous responsibility. It's a difficult thing to say. But again, if we are pursuing Christ, then we're doing everything we can to set the table for our family to follow suit. So questions you may want to ask. Husbands, do you care about your own pursuit of Jesus? Do you care? Are you pursuing Christ? Are you actively seeking him, making sure that you're looking at yourself, you're looking at your day, you're evaluating your heart before the Lord, saying, I need to follow Jesus at every moment, all day. It's not easy. But we need to be doing that. Do you care about your own pursuit of Christ? Therefore, then, do you care about your wife's pursuit of Jesus? Or do you say, well, that's up to her. I'll take care of myself, but she's going to do her own thing. Is that the role we're supposed to take? No, it's not. It's not the attitude we need to have. Same thing for our children. Do you promote God's word in your house? That's what leadership does. Say, if I'm following Christ, then I want my family to follow Christ as well. So I'm going to do whatever is necessary to lay before them those opportunities to understand what a relationship with Jesus is like. Anybody feeling the weight of responsibility yet? It's heavy. It is. But when we lay that before the Lord, He gives us all the help, wisdom that we need to carry that out. Do you let your kids fend for themselves? And it doesn't matter how old they are. You cannot have that mentality and just hope and pray. Prayer is good. But we can't just sit back, hope and pray, one day, maybe my kids will find Jesus. What are you saying? What are you doing to help them understand who Jesus is? That's responsibility. That's leadership. You are the catalyst, the driving force. Husbands, you are the ones that should be the catapult to show them what life in Christ is and what it can be. You are to mirror Jesus Christ so they have the opportunity to see Christ in action right before their eyes. And what better opportunity than for those wives and children that live within our household to see that on a daily basis? Again, I want this to be encouragement, but I want you to understand why I think too many pastors and churches fail in their premarital counseling because they don't lay this out. I don't think they make it strong enough and apparent enough how important it is the role of the husband in the marriage relationship. So if anybody ever sits with me in premarital, oh, they'll get it. Because I want them to understand. I want them to consider the life that is before them as a husband, what that means. 
There's so much more to it from the spiritual perspective. You are the under-shepherd of your home. You might say, well, I'm not a pastor. Whoa, take it easy. No, you are. As a shepherd leads his sheep, so you lead your family. So they can set their eyes on an example of a Christ-like follower. The one who is following his great shepherd, the other sheep will follow him. You're a servant leader. There's a term in scripture called doulos or doulas. Tomato, tomato. <laughs> but basically what it means is that. You're a servant leader. You are a freed slave who chooses to remain connected to his master. So because Christ has set us free, we just sang it this morning, who the Son sets free is free indeed. Free to live your own way, how you choose, how you want? No. You are still connected to your master to do his bidding, to serve at his request. When he blesses you with the opportunity of family, a wife, that's a role you take very seriously. So leadership involves recognition that God has placed you in a position of responsibility. Again, not to do as you please, but solely to be obedient and please the Lord in all that you do. You're accountable to God for your wife and your children. So there's something I want us to look at and consider as husbands. It's something I, I found long ago, probably some eight, nine years ago now. And it was applied to leadership in an education perspective. However, I'm going to take that and kind of mold it into what we're talking about this morning. It's called the leadership cycle. And I think this is very, very proper and important for us to understand that what this cycle looks like for us as leaders in the home. So step number one of this leadership cycle is personal leadership. Personal leadership. Now you're hearing of the responsibility that's placed on you. And a lot of you might feel I'm not worthy of that responsibility. Why would God choose me? Who am I to lead in that sense? I'm not good enough. Who am I? Well, let me have you ask a different question and remind you, whose are you? To whom do you belong? Who chose you? Christ. Therefore, you are worthy enough. And he'll give you everything that you need to fulfill that desire. But he chose you. So he says, follow me. Like he chose all his disciples, he looked at each and every one of them and says, follow me. That's the first step to understanding leadership. Are you willing to follow somebody else and learn? Are you following and are you learning from Christ himself? That's step number one, personal leadership. Matthew 4.19 says, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. But the step has to be taken to drop your nets, to leave your home, to leave everything behind and say, Christ, I will follow you. 
Wherever you go, I will follow you. That's step number one. Commit yourself to follow and learn. Step number two, that turns into one-on-one leadership. From the decision to follow Christ, then comes one-on-one leadership. Jesus is then going to provide you lessons and opportunities to go ahead and venture out and put into practice what he's taught you. Raise your hand if you're going to be successful every time. Well done, class. Well done. Right answer. We're going to fail, aren't we? We're going to mess up. Let's go back to Peter's example. Jesus sent them on. He went up to go in the hills to pray. He said, get in the boat, cross the sea, and I'll meet you on the other side. And what happened? Storm came up, and they're kind of stuck, and then all of a sudden they see Jesus walking on the water to them, and they start to freak out. <laughs> and then when he reveals himself, Mr. Peter says, okay, Lord, if it's you, tell me to come, and I'll walk to you. So here's one-on-one leadership opportunity for Peter. So what does Jesus say? Come on, take a step. So Peter gets out of the boat, and he starts walking on the water. We may know the story. What happens? He looks around. He takes his eyes off of Jesus, and he starts, the scripture says he starts to see the wind. In Matthew uh, 14 is the story. And I like the words, Matthew 14, how it puts it. It says, and Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come onto the water. And he said, come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, can you take that in for a moment? Can you see wind? No, but what can you see? The effects of it, right? The waves. The wind's effect on everything else around you. Don't we see that today? We see the wind around us, and sometimes it freaks us out. And that wind comes in waves of politics, the economy, you name it. The list can go on for a mile, can it? We see the wind, and what do we do? We focus on it. We get caught up in it. And we take our focus off of Christ, and what starts to happen? We start to sink. And when we start to sink, it's in those moments just like Peter. He looked up and said, Jesus, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? But did Jesus kick him out of this group? Oh, you failed. You're done. Get out. You can't be a leader. No, it was an opportunity. That one-on-one opportunity for Jesus to instill a little bit of leadership so that we go through things, albeit fail, but those are lessons that we learn so that we continue to move forward with a stronger, deeper faith in who Christ is. So people ask all the time, why do God allow bad things to happen? What is he teaching you in that opportunity? And how are you going to grow through that opportunity? Guys, what is he teaching you in those opportunities? leadership he's allowing you to grow to see the world differently through him and his eyes 
in what He's calling you to do. Step three. So we have that personal leadership, that call to follow. So we follow. Jesus then gives us that one-on-one opportunity to live out that faith. And what that leads to is step three, team or family leadership. What does that look like? Well, this is where we really then get to lead like Jesus. When he's given us others to, to disciple, others to feed into, others to take care of, that's where it turns into team or family leadership. We look to John chapter 13, verses 13 through 17. Jesus says, you call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. And here's where we need to really pay attention. He goes on in verse 15 and says, For I have given you an example that you should also, excuse me, that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. So Jesus took some time to wash his disciples' feet. The King of kings, the Lord of lords, the creator of the world, the Savior, on his knees in front of his crew, washing their feet. What is he doing? That physical action of purifying them, cleansing them, washing them. The same thing we look to in baptism today. Just that physical expression of being washed, being sanctified, because Christ has set us free. But what does he say? I've given you the example. Now go and do. Go and do. As I have done to you, go and do likewise. The result is that others would discover their call by Jesus to follow him. Oh, excuse me, I jumped ahead of myself. I'm sorry. Jesus has given us the tools we need to be successful. So he, he gives us that opportunity where he calls us to follow. We work with him one-on-one to learn success and failure. And now he says, go, here, here's your bride. Here's your children. Here's more children. He's given you more. Now it's up to you. Like we would in education when we give those kids a diploma. What are we as teachers and educators and even parents saying? Go. Go into the world. It's your turn. Live your life. Hopefully taking everything you've been taught from the Lord and by us because of the Lord to take and utilize. Go and do likewise. So that leads us to number four. From leading like Jesus to then community leadership. So we go from personal leadership to one-on-one leadership, team or family leadership to community leadership. And just another term to apply that we've used before is discipleship. Where others are in our path and therefore we teach them everything we've been taught by the Lord to pass on to them so they can then do what? Push over the next domino and the next one and the next one. 
community leadership. As Paul said to the church, imitate me as I imitate Christ. We are to be the example for those God has given to us. And no greater example than Christ's words from his high priestly prayer that we read about in John 17. In John 17, starting in verse 20, he says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. So let me clarify this. What did Jesus just say in one sentence? He just went through all four steps of this leadership cycle. He was praying for his disciples. He's getting ready to send them out into the world to change the world, to establish the church. But he says, not only for me, but for those who would believe in me because of their word. They followed me. They learned from me. Now I'm sending them out to disciple others who will follow me, learn from me, and disciple others. You see the cycle? That's why it's a cycle. That's why it's this process. So that when we fall into community leadership well, we'll carry out the words of Jesus from this prayer. Jesus would go on to say that they would all be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Christ took it right back to what we were talking about two weeks ago. Unity and love. That if we follow this cycle properly, adhering to what Christ wants us to do, and we give that away to others, who give it away to others, who give it away to others, do you see how the church can be truly unified? One, with one purpose. It's all about the glory of God. So the result is that others would discover their call by Jesus to follow him. And all that does is start the cycle anew. So after community leadership and discipleship, somebody chooses to follow Christ because of your following Christ, then what happens? They fall into personal leadership, to one-on-one leadership, to team and family leadership and community leadership, and it goes on and on. So as Christians, as a Christian's primary responsibility is doing God's will, a husband's primary responsibility is effective leadership in the home. So evaluate where you're at, guys. See where you're at in that cycle. But what I will tell you, according to God's word, every single one of us is in that cycle somewhere. You have to be. (laughs) If you follow Christ, you're in that cycle somewhere. And that's okay. That if you need to back up, if you need to rewind a step and go, am I really following Christ? Or did I say I chose Christ and then I'm just living my life how I want? Or are you following Christ? Evaluate where you're at in that cycle. Maybe you've gone through personal, you've gone through one-on-one because we've all had successes and failures that we've learned from. We're all in that family dynamic, so maybe we're in that team family leadership. Now what I want you to really think about is are you following through on God's call to community leadership? One question, simple enough. Who are you discipling? Who are you discipling? We're called to do it. You don't have to go out and seek somebody. 
You don't need to go walk along the shores of Lake Elsinore and go find a disciple who's fishing on the shore. Hey, drop your pole, come and follow me. It's not what we're talking about. That'd be cool, but you look under your roof. Look under your roof. And I ask you again, who are you discipling? That's something we need to consider. Listen to this. If, this, if nothing else smacked you yet, this will. <laughs> yeah, there's more. Maybe heard of the old evangelist, preacher, missionary D.L. Moody. He said, if a man doesn't treat his wife right, I don't want to hear him talk about Christianity. I'll just let that settle in the air for a moment. But he goes on. If I wanted to find out whether a man was a Christian, I wouldn't go to his minister. I'd go to his wife. Now, I know my Jess will have to clarify this for me, but I do remember a time when we were going through uh, an assessment process. In this whole church planting process we went through, there was a time we sat before a panel and sat before other people, and they you know, were firing questions at us back and forth. And, and I, if I remember right, I, you probably remember this better than I do, but we were sitting with one uh, lady, and basically the question was asked, or paraphrased in a certain way, could you sit under your husband as your pastor? And I wanted to speak up, but I lovingly was told to keep my mouth closed because it wasn't for me to answer. But it was, a, it was an honest question. How can I pastor others if I'm not pastoring my own home? And that's not just for pastors. It's for every man in this room, again, who was the under-shepherd of your home. Something to consider. So guys, we're to lead our wives in mutual submission to Christ's authority towards that continual process of mutual sanctification. What's it all for? Why do we do this? As we were ending last week, hopefully what you heard, wives, again, in, in your role as a submissive wife and loving and respecting your husband and all that you are to do, it's all for what? The glory of God. And so likewise, why would that be any different today? As we talk about the role of the husband, it's all for the continued sanctification of our lives for the glory of God. The purpose of appearing before Christ at our resurrection into eternal glory, God might look at you husbands and as you present your family to the Lord. I don't know how it's going to work, honestly. But if that's the case, how are you preparing yourself and your family for that moment? Now, I understand. You cannot force your children into heaven. You cannot force your child or your wife into a relationship with Christ. But you've got to do everything possible within your capability to present to them the opportunity of what Christ is like and the opportunities he has for them. And if you do that on a continual basis, then you are doing your job. 
Let's look at verses 28 and 30. It says, In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. So this is what I want you to hear in that passage is that there is a natural inclination for us to take care of ourselves. You don't willingly put yourself in harm's way. You protect yourself if there's danger, if there's distress, or in any such way you try and take care of yourself. If somebody's going to come up and just throw a haymaker at you, you're going to duck, I hope. You're not just going to take it. You're going to flinch. You're going to do something because that's our natural inclination to protect ourselves. because that's what this means by loving your wives as you do your own body. You try and protect yourself at all costs. So as God formed woman out of man, so he brought them together in marriage unity as one. So what makes you look at her as a separate individual apart from you? To say, She'll live her own life. She'll do her own thing. She'll find Christ on her own. No. That's not, if you're looking at her that way as a separate entity, then you're not adhering to Scripture, and you don't understand biblical marriage. And I say that lovingly, but that's what Jesus is saying here, is that that concept of unity, of oneness, needs to be taken seriously in marriage. That she is a part of us. She came from us, but yet we're born out of her. There is a oneness in marriage, in what God has ordained. So we're to think of our wives as members of our own body. That's how Jesus thinks of his church. I asked you earlier, in what ways did Jesus think of or love his church, love us? Simple terminology he nourished it, he served it, protected it, cherished it, loved it, sacrificed for it. So guys, are we to think any other way in regards to our own wives, children, or families? That answer is no, by the way. Like Christ did for his church, we do for our family. So the conclusion today to all this is verses 31 and th through 33. It kind of, in Paul's way, kind of brings this discussion on marriage, wives and husbands together. And so this is moreover a conclusion for wives and husbands today, collectively. Verses 31 through 33 says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Francis Folks said that this statement from the creation story, verse 31, by the way, that a husband shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, he said that statement from the creation story is the most profound and fundamental statement in the whole of Scripture concerning God's plan for marriage. When Eve was created, she was taken 
God took her out of Adam and formed Eve. Adam's first statement was in, in Genesis 2.23, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. So when we look at our wives as members of our bodies, as one flesh, united together, that is what we need to see. Genesis 2.24, then he, uh, Adam then would make the statement, and, and the two shall become one flesh. For both the husband and the wife, we've declared that Jesus is our example. We said that two weeks ago. We said it last week. We said it today. And we'll probably say it every other week until the Lord says, all done. But he is our example. It is he that we look to always for everything. So I know there was a lot mentioned today. But I also understand and we're very well aware that not everything just goes according to plan. We are all too often like Peter, both of us, husbands and wives. When we see the wind, we see the effects of it, and we get caught up in it. In whatever respect that might be. So let me give you four very quick things to think about when those moments happen. Not if they happen when they happen. So just a few things to consider. Again, with Christ as our example. In those moments of distress, uncertainty, anger, sadness, whatever it might be, number one, do what Jesus did. Practice solitude. Stop feeling like you need to just fight through it and keep going because then it'll just make itself better. It's not how it works. Multiple times in Scripture we read that Christ went away by himself in solitude. He needed to be alone with his Father. So, we have that opportunity as well to take that chance when we can with good communication between each other I mean, how, I mean, does it go without saying, do we, do we need some alone time every now and again? Oh, yeah. yeah, we do. And so, husbands, if your wife is in need of solitude, then you need to sacrifice whatever it is you feel you need to do in that moment and protect that moment for her. If children are an issue, you remove, lovingly, the children from the picture Take them out of the house. Get them away so they're not trying to crawl under the door to find mom. As they will do. Sometimes we hear it in our own house. I hear it from my three children. I'm sitting down. I'm working or doing something else. And I'm in the loft and working at my desk. And my son comes out of his room, which is upstairs. And he comes right up to me, looks me in the face and goes, where's mom? I said, son, she, she, she's not here. I don't know. Sometimes I'll say, go find her. Go look. Or if I know she's not around, I'd say, she's not around. Don't go look for her. Whatever it might be. But we hear that all the time. Where's mom? Where's mom? Where's mom? <laughs> I love you, but give her space. So we need solitude sometimes. It's okay. It's okay to admit that, number one. 
Christ practiced it, so do we. Number two, experience prayer. Practice some solitude, and at the same time, experience prayer. You don't go to solitude to stare at the wall and zone out. That's not the purpose of solitude. Why did Christ go off and find himself alone with his Father? To pray. To pray. So as you practice solitude, you pray. Number three, you apply Scripture. In your solitude, you pray. And in that time of prayer, you wait on the Lord. And He will give you something from His Word, either from Him or from His Word, that you can apply to the situation at hand. Remember, 2 Timothy 3 tells us that all Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. We need to use God's Word because there is nothing in our life, not a single scenario, that we can't look to God's Word for help, for wisdom, for answers. Guaranteed. But sometimes we need to seek it out, don't we? Solitude, prayer, Scripture, and number four, abide in God's love. We've talked about abiding a lot. Abide in His love. Rest in it. Seek it out. Enjoy it. It's not hard to find. You've got to set it in your mind. Remember, it's that decisive action to say, I need more of God's love in my life. He'll give you every ounce that He can. Remember what we're told in John 13. Love one another as I have loved you. So take all that as a reminder. Please, if you need to, go back and review these notes, husbands. Wives, same thing. The notes are there. Review them. Look at Scripture. Settle into it. Figure out what it is that you need to work on, correct, or continue to move forward in. Because if anything, what we gain from this in marriage, the mystery that is spoken of right here at the end, if there's anything we grab onto, it's this. That biblical marriage is one that points others to Jesus Christ. Have you thought about that in regards to your marriage? That your relationship, how you handle your marriage, is a picture of the love of Christ to the rest of the world. Your marriage can be the gospel message to somebody else. How many of you, don't raise your hand, but know others that are struggling in marriage that could use a godly, biblical perspective to look to as an example? Not to copycat, but just to look to for encouragement. That's what our marriages can do when we fulfill the roles that God has given us. Just remember what Christ did for His church. Husbands, we do that for our wives. Wives, as we submit to Christ, we submit to our husbands. And if all that is being done properly, biblically, it's a beautiful picture of God's love for us. Amen? Amen. Let's pray.